Welcome to episode number 58 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Buddy Pegs, a family adventure media company celebrating cycling. Please visit thejacksonholeconnection.com slash buddy to learn more. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. My guest today is Ivan Posey, a U.S. Army veteran, father of three, American Indian, and leading member of the Wind River Indian Reservation. Ivan will share with us his personal history of growing up on a reservation, how life has changed for people living on the reservation, and some interesting facts regarding American Indian life. Ivan spent 21 years on the Eastern Shoshone Business Council. He was granted an appointment by the governor of Wyoming and continues to be an advocate for American Indian education. Ivan's fascinating story is one which should not be missed, and you really need to share this one with friends and neighbors. Ivan, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join me today. Sure. I look forward to having the discussion and uh, maybe educating about a few things and kind of get the message out there about uh, American Indians. Certainly. So let's start there. Is the um, ethnic group American Indian or is it Native American? What, What do you prefer? I think as a tribal person, or as tribal people, we prefer whatever tribe you're from. You know, they're Crow, they're Cheyenne, they're Rappo. But I think in the the bigger context of the word, I, I prefer American Indian. You know, I worked for the Forest Service uh, 30 years ago, and there was always this argument, well, I was born here in America, so that makes me a Native American. You know, so I think American Indian is probably... Probably not what we really want it to be, but it's close enough. I was uh, raised in the Fort Washakie area of the reservation, the, the community that's closest to the mountains here on the, in Wyoming. And, um, you know, went to school here at Fort Washakie. It only went up to eighth grade then. Uh, I spent some time in boarding school in Oklahoma. Got out, worked a couple of years when served my country in the U.S. Army. And the rest is kind of history. You know, I went to work for the... U.S. Forest Service at that time and uh, was a non-traditional student when I went back to school in my late 20s, early 30s, and uh, got elected to the business council and sat there for quite a while. And when I was term limited for a couple of years, I worked at the Arapahoe School District as their federal programs director. And then I was the first tribal liaison appointed by our gov- then governor, um, Dave Friedenthal, in 2003. When you say tribal liaison, you're liaising liaison with the state of Wyoming? Between the state of Wyoming and the tribes. Okay. Yes. So was it, 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 those, those positions still uh, still exist yet. Although at the time when I was appointed, it was to work with both tribes. Now they got one for each tribe. They have one that works with the Shoshone Council and one that works with the Arapahoe Council. And let's go back to where you were born. You were born in Lander. And you are part of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. Yes, I'm a which is go ahead. which is made up of other tribes, correct? Yeah, well the Eastern Shoshone tribe, uh, you know, they're 
they just got done with their reunion a few days ago, a couple days ago. So there's a, uh, they have a lot in common with several tribes across the country, the Comanche, the Paiute, the Bannock, the Aztecs. So there's a lot of tribes that historically were one tribe and they, they come from the Great Basin. But in this area that we're in now is one of the places that the Eastern Shoshone Band frequented uh, around this warm valley, as we call it, and around Fort Bridger in that country. So I'm, I'm also, my dad was, uh, he was Shoshone and Arapaho, so I'm part both tribes. And my mom was Northern Cheyenne from uh, Montana. Okay. And how did your mom and dad meet? You know, my understanding is they met in Thermopolis, you know, uh-huh. of, all, of all places. There used to be a lot of, uh, a, a large population there in the late 40s and throughout the 50s and 60s. And my mom had a sister that lived there. Her and my two older brothers went down there and stayed with her. And that's where she met my dad, my understanding. Excellent. But, but I'm, the, I'm the youngest of, I'm not young anymore, but I was the, young, <laughs> I was the youngest of 13 kids. There was a lot of uh, a lot of families like that. They had a lot of lot of uh, a lot of children at that time. And how far back does your family lineage go? uh, Trace back into here in Wyoming. Well, way before it was the state, you know. Sure. Before statehood, and uh, you know they frequented uh, the band of Shoshone. This band of Shoshone frequented this area, the Jackson Hole area the Fort Bridger area around Evanston and down by Salt Lake. So they, of course, we had no concept of ownership at that time, but we, um, we was nomadic. So we had certain places where we gathered certain things and hunt certain time. We camp here and hunt and, you know, it just depends on that. That's why we call it our ancestral land. You know, we didn't, we didn't say this was ours, but it was areas of the, the, earth or mother earth that we utilized at that time and sometimes on the same basis certain times a year gather berries gather uh like i said hunting uh, places to camp during winter time and so it was probably pretty good back then you know depending on we're not at war with anybody else or whatever other mm-hmm. tribes are you know i, I want to get into some aspects of being american indian Mm-hmm. But before I do, I want to give a little bit of background of myself. So I grew up in Mississippi, the heart of the Southern Baptist culture, and growing up Jewish, mm-hmm. um, I always felt a little different. And there were a few Jewish children within an hour's drive of where we went. We actually drove an hour every Sunday to go to Sunday school. So I always felt a little different, that there was, there was something different. What was it like when you were growing up as an American? <coughs> and have you seen some positive changes uh, over time now as being an American Indian? I think there's, there is some positive changes. I mean, uh, when I went to Fort Washington school, that was predominantly... 99% tribal students there, but there wasn't one tribal teacher. And nowadays, if you go into any of the schools on the reservation, there's plenty of uh, tribal teachers now, you know, and I think that makes a big difference in terms of learning and the comfortableness and of, of Indian students. And there's a tribal person now teaching. Uh, and like I said, opposed to me when I was in grade school in the 60s and mid-70s, 
there was really no, I shouldn't say role models, but there wasn't no uh, tribal teachers at that time. Like I said, most of the schools here on reservation went to eighth grade and you either had to go to boarding school, which a lot of tribal students did. And the boarding schools were a lot different from the time our parents went. Our parents were punished for speaking the language and those types of things. Our days in boarding school was more was more uh, disciplined, but not um, not as hand heavy as our parents. As you know, you had uh, to earn your way. You had details. You had to mop, and you had to have kitchen duty and all these other things. Um, but then, if you stayed locally here, you either went to Riverton or um, Lander, which is predominantly non-tribal. So, you know, it's, it's a big change for students to go from 99% tribal population to being a real small minority in a bigger high school, you know. And uh, that, that's what happened to me when I went to Lander. I didn't last too long there, you know. And uh, I went there and uh, got in trouble. And the counselor there, he said, well, you're not going to cut it here. You might as well go to boarding school. And years later, I found out that that counselor was actually a tribal member. I didn't know that, you know, so I, I don't know if he uh, uh, was encouraging or discouraging, but he, he pointed the way for me, you know. And do you feel that over time there's more tribal role models for, for children because it's more acceptable for the tribal people to uh, go for a higher education? I, I think to some extent it is. I think it's uh, so I think I look at it and say, well, education is uh, the way for us to get ahead and uh, make a better life for ourselves. But I think in Indian country, we also are at the crossroads of um, educating ourselves about ourselves. And the way I say that is uh, some of our younger people learning the stuff that, say, my generation knew. Um, and it's our responsibility to teach that. Uh, and those those things ain't taught in the textbook or at the college level. It's more of a family, tribal learning aspect that uh, a lot of times make us uh, tribal people. Does that make sense? It does. And yeah. I'm going to ask, what are some of those traits or aspects of, of life which make a tribal people? You know, like, like the gathering of uh, certain types of... Uh, plants and berries and uh you know there's some some things that are unwritten don't go here during this time and don't go there during this time and some of those is uh stuff that we was raised with that uh somehow is kind of absent nowadays i think what's uh the language is one of those you know the language is dying out um for both tribes here i think the i think the rapo tribe is uh 10,500 people, and you only have 150 fluent speakers. The Shoshone tribe is about 4,400 people, and I think they have like 50-something fluent speakers left. So they, they, in my time, they didn't teach that language at the school level. Um, now they do. Now they have teachers that teach a language, but I think what's missing there is these younger people learn the basic words and maybe the basic sentence structures, but they go home and their parents don't talk it. So eventually it'll die out continually. 
you know, so the, the efforts there is to, uh, uh, to do total immersion, you know, where you take them and set them aside for four or five days and speak nothing but the language, you know, and have them converse with fluent speakers and learn that process. So it's, a, it's something that uh, I'm hoping that those efforts will come to fruition and, and bring the results tribal people want. You know, or else we, we, we would be, we're still going to be very hurting for um, the language. Now, do other tribes throughout the country battle the same um, issues with keeping some of the tribal traits alive? Yes, I, I think they do. I, I really do, you know. And uh, you look at the resiliency of tribal people, you know, because like around the turn of the century, the late 1800s, late 1900s, uh, we wasn't allowed to speak our language. We wasn't allowed to do certain ceremonies. And I think during the last 20, 30 years, there have been efforts to say, we need to bring some of that stuff back, you know. And a lot of that was... Uh, historical trauma um, that goes back to, um, say, my parents' generation and stuff, that they didn't want to teach their kids some of that, fearing that they would be punished like they was, you know. Mm. So I think, I think over time, those efforts are going to, they need to remain strong. And to, like I said, and some of those things that we know, uh, doesn't have to necessarily be language, but the way we was raised, I think it's our responsibility to teach our younger people uh, some of those traits that we was raised with. Because, you know, societal changes now, I mean, it's a whole different. In any society, it's a lot different. Big big challenge there to reverse a lot of the harm that's been done in the past yes. and to ensure that these cultures are kept alive and documented as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so you've done some work on a national level as well for American Indian tribes. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the things that you've done there. Well, you know, I was uh, over the years when I was on a council, we uh, worked on a tribal law and order code, a law, tribal law and order act, which strengthened the laws in uh, tribal country, Indian country. Uh, there's so much overland jurisdictions, you know, there's state, there's county, there's uh, FBI, which is federal, and there's tribal. And a lot of things fell through the cracks because of that jurisdictional issue. Uh, the Tribal Law and Order Act, which was signed by President Obama in 2000, I think it was 11, um, tried to streamline some of that. Um, so I, w- I was very proud to be part of that group as an, as a part of an advisory committee. You know, as you probably are aware, there's this uh, movement in any country now about missing and murdered indigenous women, where a lot of Indian women have become just up and disappeared over the years. They don't know what happened to them. And there was really no follow-up because of jurisdictional issues and stuff. So hopefully some of those things get ironed out. You know, I, I was a big uh, supporter of recovery and um, battling substance abuse in our communities because I think that's a, that's a, a still a big thing in Indian country, like it is anywhere else, substance abuse and drug abuse. And uh, that's an ongoing issue that really uh, devastates not only the person using, but has ripple effects uh, within our own family structure. You know, we're very close as a family structure. And I, I don't know if any, maybe there's other groups that are like that, but, you know, when I went in the Army and stuff, they'd 
people would ask me, uh, well, how much family you got? So I tell them, I said, well, how about you? How much? Well, I got a brother, but I haven't seen him in six years. And in my thought and my mind was like saying, how do you guys live without not seeing each other all the time? You know? So I yeah. think in Indian country, it's kind of like that where you're just close to other family members, tribal members that it's just a given, you know? And you see another structure where another group say they haven't seen their their uh, sisters or brothers for six, seven, eight years, and you go, how, how could you do that? You know, so just a different different approach, I guess. I I agree. I see my yeah. brother and sister um, at least once a year, but we all make efforts to talk to each other on the phone. Yeah. We live in dis- different parts of the country, and it's so important. It is. It really is. It really I'm, is. My mom always used to say, when it comes down to it, there's one thing that you have in life, and that's family. And that's mm-hmm. something that you always have to maintain is your family. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. It really is. And uh, yeah, I, I think some of those things are uh, still pretty strong in our community. But then again, when uh, things happen, like I said, substance abuse or drug abuse, it sure has devastating effects to those who are close to that person. You know, mm-hmm. so I guess that's one, one of the one of the issues that, uh, uh, for good or bad, it's, uh, it, it could affect a whole bunch of people by one person using. You know, I, I provided a lot of testimony on funding for Indian Health Service for Borough Indian Affairs. Um, it was actually the first tribe back in 2006 that joined the NAACP out of Baltimore. The Shoshone tribe was. Hmm. And, uh, that was that was a good thing. We, myself and a, a couple other tribal members went out there and met with Reverend Rivers, and uh, they came out to the reservation. Uh, it was uh, probably three or four years that we was a part of that group. Then I kind of. It is just kind of a, there was changes, changes in the structure of the NAACP and stuff. So it's kind of just fizzled away. But that's one thing I think that um, we did. And we was the only tribe in the whole country that at least joined the NAACP because we thought there were some things that we probably had in common. I, I think that's a fantastic vision that you had in, in your tribe. Um, there had to have been some commonality there, and and I hope that it worked out for for both of you, for it both did. organizations. It really did, you know. And we talked about the history and uh, what we could work on, and I think it. Uh, uh, it's too bad that there was it was, uh, in my opinion, short lived two or three years, but I uh, I think there's still an opportunity there to to work together. So, you know, talking about people's knowledge of American Indian life and tribes mm-hmm. if somebody's not familiar what can they do to familiarize themselves and to maybe offer some outreach to help the cause or whatever they yeah mean. yeah thank you i, I think uh, you know a couple years a couple years ago we started a speaker series here at the college and um the issues that i came up with was uh what makes us indian and one was a blood degree and one was blood quantum. And a lot of tribes um, still base their citizenship on blood quantum. And they have to be like the Shoshone tribe and the Arapaho tribe here on Wound River have to prove that they are at least one quarter degree of whatever tribe that they're going to be enrolled in. So in terms of the whole big picture, I think we may be the only race that, you know, besides uh 
horses and I don't know what else. I go by blood quantum. You know, mm-hmm. I, could pull, I could pull out my ID now, my tribal ID, and it says I'm three quarters Shoshone. But at that time, the enrollment um, for the Shoshone tribe didn't count their Rappel blood. So it, it's, uh, we, we have, I, I've sat on councils that have enrolled people that was one, one sixty fourth over 520th, you know, so we go by division and that's, uh, how we see who's a member of our tribe, you know, and, and it's a very, uh, interesting historical road that we went down to get to this point. And as you probably know, the, the original, um, constitution deemed black people as what three fifths mm-hmm. and i think that's where this came from and i think uh, when we became wards of the government and it was under the war department at that time they utilized that same process thinking 50 years down the road nobody's going to meet that criteria you know that well it's a form of genocide but it's a form of uh numeric genocide fractionated genocide you know, where uh, nobody can meet uh, those, so there'd be no no more Indians that could actually say we're Indian. So I think um, some tribes have uh, went to descendancy. If they could uh, prove that they're a part of that tribe, the tribe will enroll them. But many tribes like ours, we still are stuck with the efforts of one quarter degree Indian blood. So when I was, I was the chairman for the, uh, Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Program, which included uh, um, when I was on a council, uh, all the tribes in Montana, uh, tribes in Idaho, and uh, two here from Wyoming. And we got uh, presented with the last census, and it, it uh, included that there was um, so many of us. We, you know, there we're not even two and a half million people, you know, in this country of over 330 million and uh, we're a small percentage but that number grew and in the census it doesn't reflect when they say are you Indian and they could say yes and they'll just check the box but for us that are enrolled and have to go by blood quantum and that are members of a federally recognized tribe we have to prove through certificate of Indian blood our other type of documentation that we are Indians. You did it, so it doesn't. So some of those people that say, yeah, I'm American Indian, and I'll check the box, may not be enrolled, but just check the box without any proof that they are American Indians. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. So so kind of, it kind of uh, makes the numbers not add up, you know? Sure. So that was one of the, and we, we uh, had it here at the campus on, in Riverton here, and then we uh, held it over at the library, which was very well turned out at Jackson. And people really didn't know what makes us Indian. You know, and that was kind of the topic, what makes us Indian. You know, any, anybody could uh, say they're Indian, but for us that are Indian, there's a process of proof that we have to go through, which is uh, sometimes crazy. Do some of the new DNA tests, which are available and out there, make it easier for that proof? It, it doesn't, you know, I think like the ancestry and those types of things, because it doesn't say what tribe. 
Okay. You know, it won't say what tribe you are. Somebody could uh, send in a test and they'll come back and they say, well, they're 30% tribal or American Indian, but it doesn't say what tribe they are. That person may not know what tribe they are, you know? Mm -hmm. So so I think that DNA is is some way of identifying that, but it doesn't identify it clearly enough uh, in terms of what tribe they may have come from. Just shows don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge don't judge a person by its by their skin color because what you see on the outside might be a lot different what's on the inside. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like I said, the process that was uh, initiated for Indians back in the late eighteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds, many tribes, including ours, are still living with those efforts of uh, genocidal uh, fractionation. You know, because right now uh, we're at a crossroads in terms of tribes need to decide who is members of their tribes based on our own standards. You know, because we adopted non-tribal people. We adopted people from other tribes before this process went into to effect. Uh, but I think through generations, uh, it's kind of stuck in some people's head where you have to be a quarter mm-hmm. to be you have to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's something that kind of stuck and some people are very, are very um, um, supportive of that process. I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we do need to develop a process and we decide who's part of our tribe based on our own standards. Because, you know, 50 years down the road, we're still in, stuck in the same position is uh, some people won't be able to meet that criteria. Although they may live here on the reservation, they may speak the language, they may um, uh, know the customs and traditions, and, and it's just uh, something we have to look toward the future for is how do we change it? Phenomenal information and insight because I can tell you that's information I've never known before. So thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Hey, Ivan, we're going to take a quick break and get a word from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Sounds good. Do you know what a freedom machine is? Do you remember the enjoyment and confidence riding a bike gave you? When was the last time you rode your bike? Well, the fun folks at Buddy Pegs Media can answer all of those questions. They're building children's confidence and connecting families in this digital age through books, podcasts, and learning to ride classes. The Buddy Pegs family are creating healthier lifestyles for families and helping children be more successful through the power of the bicycle. Check them out today at thejacksonholeconnection.com slash buddy. Welcome back, Ivan. We were just talking about what makes up an Indian, um, an American Indian, and you were telling me about the the blood quantum. Mm -hmm. So... I want to get into some things that you're doing currently to continue the the history and the culture of American Indian life. And you're currently employed by Central Wyoming College over in Riverton, and you're the Tribal Education Coordinator. Yes, I am. Nice title, but what does it mean? Well, right now it's a it's a very it's the first time this uh, this position has existed. It's um, you know we we're working on uh, several efforts. One is uh, 
uh, called Central Army College Wind River, where we signed MOUs between both tribes for, for the college to hold college courses on the reservation, which, which is, which is a, a good deal because uh, from Fort Washington, it's about 35 miles one way down to Riverton. And they come down there for one class every other day. At, uh, sometimes life happens and people have a hard time with transportation. So some of those efforts I've been working with. Uh, but historically, there was a project that was done here at Central Army College 30 years ago. And it was called the Valley of the Three Worlds. In the Three Worlds it was Shoshone, Rappo, and the non-tribal communities. And somehow a lot of the stuff walked away. And I just happened upon it while I came working here. But um, they interviewed 112 older people at that time in 1986 and 87. And out of those 112 people, there's only three people still alive. And these are all tribal people. So we have the cassette tapes. We have some of those that are uh, uh, digitized or uh, been transferred digitally. And, and they're such a, a godsend of how we are going to utilize those for uh, students to learn. Maybe they, maybe they, um, hear their great-grandma for the first time. You know, in some of the uh, interviews that were done, some were done in completely Shoshone, some were done in complete Arapaho. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a good thing, and that's something that uh, my interest is in, is these people are talking about how they was raised. Some were born in the early 1900s. Some talked about the Depression era and Indian country. And some of the historical stuff is would be very beneficial for even myself, uh, the students here, to learn a little bit more about, like I said, we're so closely related, family-wise, tribally-wise, um, that we all have something in common there. So that, I've been, uh, we have a bunch of pictures here, and they're all black and white, and it makes it look like we're, um, those black and white pe pictures make it look like uh, or people of the past, or still here. So my efforts is to get more contemporary pictures uh, in this intertribal center here on campus, and to show people that we're, we're still here, we're still contributing. Um, and like I said, in my, my efforts here is to try to convey some of that information, um, that knowledge that is probably not in any textbook, tribally. And, and have some of our students be exposed to that, you know, and, and maybe learn some of those qualities that bought us as far as uh, tribal people. So I, I still work um, hand in hand with the tribal governments here, with a lot of the tribal programs here, but also uh, my efforts with the students here to help them recruit, retain, but also educate them about who they, who they are where they come from and at least make that uh, accessible for them to learn something. So it's, like I said, it's a new position. Because I started out as a diversity coordinator here and uh, I think it changed my title to the tribal education coordinator because that was my strength. So it's, it's been a good journey so far. Well, thank you for doing that important work to keep the history alive and, and the culture alive. So I like what you said. So we're not a, a society of the past. We are current and we are here 
and we are you are alive yeah so are there courses that are being taught there in riverton to um non-tribal members so they can learn about the american yeah. indian culture and your tribes there is uh, and that those are those classes that they have through textbook process the western academia side you know is open to any uh, any not, not only tribal members but the process that um will initiate also will also be shared with whoever wants to be knowledgeable in that area. Um, I know the language language program. There's been several uh, non-Indians that have taken those Arapaho language classes and uh, are very fluent. You know, and the, the, uh, the instructor there, name was Wayne Seher. He said some of these uh, non-Indians pick up on it better than tribal people. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know what that is, but he said that they uh, speak fluently and they can introduce themselves. In, through the tribal uh, language, Arapaho tribal language. And, uh, you know, as a tribal people, we're very inclusive. Of course, there are some things, whether it's ceremonial or traditional, that we probably wouldn't share. Uh, but they're, for the most part, we're very inclusive and uh, um, like, like to let people know who, who and what we're about. So I've heard you tell a story a few times about when the reservation was being created there was an and you tell you tell the story well you, well, you know the first uh the, the shoshone tribe was a smaller tribe and you look back on uh, chief washki and he looked back east i think and realized what was happening to these tribes back then so he befriended the the settlers and the military and um a lot of the shoshone warriors became um, scouts for the U.S. government. So, you know, in, in that trade-off, uh, our treaties were peace treaties with the government, with the Shoshone people and the Bannocks were also part of that uh, treaty. So initially, our, our Treaty of 1863 encompassed 44 million acres, which included parts of Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado. And then five years later, they renegotiated because the Western expansion, of course, gold being found. So when they had the, the discussion of where the Shoshones wanted to live, and we may be the only tribe in the country that got to choose its own homeland, because uh, you look at some of the uh, history of that, and they offered the Shoshone tribe, well, how about Jackson? You know, I mean, Jackson Hole at that time. Uh, I don't know what they called it back then, but they said, no, there's too much snow there. <laughs> so they said, uh, so uh, they like to settle for where we're at now, which is called the Bourne Valley on this uh, eastern side of the slope. But I always say that if we got Jackson, all the Indians would know how to ski. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it's uh, in that Jackson area, you know, the, this band of Shoshone is frequented quite a bit. The Bannocks did, uh, of course, the Crows and Blackfeet came down once in a while and, you know, battled the Shoshones and we, we all battled each other at one time and uh, um, a lot of times for hunting rights. Through the treaty, the Shoshone Bannock could actually hunt buffalo in the park, the National Park Service, or the National Park over there in Jackson. 
and had been doing that since the 60s, you know, there was a, um, a case called the Racehorse case where he killed a, a elk, I think it was an elk on a federal land and um, Supreme Court upheld him. So now they, you know, we Shoshones haven't gone that far in terms of hunting in the park, but the Shoshone Bannock uses that treaty right to do that. So that's uh, one area that the treaty actually was upheld and was good for the, at least one of the bands. And as you know, there's the Crow case up in Sheridan, and we'll see how that comes out. You know, the uh, game warden that was off duty shot an elk and it ran onto the Bighorn National Forest and the Supreme Court this spring upheld that decision that the tribe has a treaty right to hunt on unoccupied federal lands. So it's interesting how that, you know, sometimes it takes a while to iron some of that stuff out, but uh, in some instances, the treaties are still upheld. I'm, I'm glad they are. It's, yeah. it's, it's important to stand by what the government signed off on. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they don't. But I think these hunting rights are, you know, it's been good for us. And uh, here in uh, Wind River, you know, we had the water case where we was allotted a, a 500-acre thousand feet of water. It could only be used towards agricultural purposes, but at least we won that in 1990 on our treaty right also. So you, there's always a legal aspect to that. You know, shouldn't have to go that far, but it does. Yeah, it, it shouldn't. But like you said, it does. And mm. fortunately, there there are systems. So upcoming here in Jackson is a powwow. Yeah. And tell me in de- with some detail, what exactly is the historical significance of a powwow? I think it's... um. Historically, just been a social event mm-hmm. where uh, members get together and dance and sing. Uh, over the last probably 60 years or so, uh, uh, tribes put on their own powwows. Uh, over time, uh, there's been prize money added that uh, in different categories, whether it's women's traditional, men's traditional, men's fancy, women's fancy, and those type of aspects where... Uh, it becomes a, a contest-driven event also. So we, we uh, it, it, it kind of started up in Jackson uh, last year with, uh, and I wasn't there, but the Old West days, I guess, where they had um, non-tribal people dressed as tribal people on some uh, parade floats, and uh, some thought it was very offensive. Uh, they reached out to... Uh, myself and a couple of the people at the college, and we agreed to put together some diversity training. And this was in the early part of May. So there were some county commissioners there, some uh, legislators, uh, school personnel, law enforcement. So there's probably like 35 people there. And I then, attended then the next week, uh, the next week we uh, went to, um, met on, met with uh, Pete, the mayor there, and with uh, Anna, the chamber director, and, and we start talking about powwow and what the United Tribes, uh, uh, where we do one every year down here. And it was all decided we would do one this year. So we kind of used a template that we use for our powwow here, which made it a lot simpler. 
And uh, the process for, the hardest process was just the procedural permitting aspect of just the town of Jackson. You know, <laughs> a, lot of that you, a, lot, a lot of hoops you got to jump through and stuff, you know, just because it's Jackson. And uh, so it, it, uh, it's going to be a social event, obviously. Uh, anybody's welcome to attend. Hopefully we'll get a little sunshine tomorrow. If not, we got the option of moving it into part of the fairgrounds there indoor. Uh, but we um, will be saddled with uh, the capacity that the fire marshal puts on that venue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we uh, looked at early on the possibility of having that at a school or having a backup and the liability was so high. And plus the schools have volleyball tournaments and all all these other things that would be big enough to host it, but it just, uh, just didn't work out. So we're, we're moving on. We're moving forward with the power tomorrow, rain or shine. And I think we have a couple options that we'll have, but, you know, we like to invite people to come and uh, observe. And like I said, when we hunt and gather there in the, in the Jackson Hole area, and probably not just our tribe, maybe the Blackfeet Crow, the Bannocks, I'm sure there was a social aspect to that where they danced and sang 200 years ago, hmm. you know? So it's uh, it's refreshing for me to uh, kind of bring back that spirit to that beautiful country over there that we, that our ancestors once inhabited and utilized. And will you be coming over for that, Ivan? I will. I will be there. I, uh, Excellent. I'll be there at eight o'clock in the morning to help set up the sound system and Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever I could do. Okay. So, uh, and I'll probably help the color guard if they need help taking the colors in at grand entry. So I'll, I'll be there. And obviously uh, the members of the United Tribes Club that are heading up there, nine or 10 of them that are coming up. Brad Tyndall, who's the president of CWC, will be there. And I think Pete, the mayor, Mayor Pete, I call him. I can't remember his last name, but he, uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll do the welcoming. And so, you know, the little... I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm looking forward to it as well. I uh, I hope that we can get our kids out there. Um, oh, yeah. Rally them, get them going. Yeah, then there's, you know, there's people ask, why can they participate? And there's a, there's a dance called Inner Tribal. And the Master of Ceremonies will uh, say, well, this is the Inner Tribal dance. So anybody that wants to go out there and dance can dance. Whether they oh, know on. Yeah, so it's, it's an inclusive process. Fantastic. Yes. So, Ivan, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you, is there an email address that people you want to share with folks and they could connect with you? Sure. Uh, my email is uh, iposey, all lowercase, at cwc.edu. Fantastic. And any final words of wisdom, inspiration that you would like to share with people before we um, wrap this up today? No, I, did, I just uh, appreciate, Stefan, the opportunity to kind of share uh, some aspects of tribalism on your podcast today. And uh, like you said, if there's any information that people would like to reach out to me, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always willing to share, you know, my, my point of view, being born and raised on a reservation, going through that prospect and um, or that aspect of a big family. And, you know, I always refer back to Lyndon Bain Johnson in 67. I was only seven years old then, but he declared a war on poverty. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. 
we sent people out to uh, reservations and they came back with the reports saying these Indians live in extreme poverty. They have no running water, no indoor plumbing. And uh, my dad used to tease, he said, we didn't know we was in extreme poverty. That's how everybody lived. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of think about that and it's kind of like, you know, we uh, were resilient and um, we, we got a good sense of humor about things. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Ivan. Thank you for serving in the armed services and supporting our country and doing what you're doing to ensure that American Indian culture and tribes stay alive and keep those languages alive. You're a fantastic person. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Stefan. And I'll see you tomorrow, hopefully. I hope so. Look forward to it. Have a great day. You too. See ya. To learn more about Ivan and his great work, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash episode number 58. I do love hearing from my listeners and subscribers. So if you have feedback or suggestions, please send an email to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. And please remember to visit buddypegs.com and download their podcast. You'll for sure enjoy it. I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Morey, my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing guru, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.